right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. (laughs) Science in between. Science in between. This is Scott. This is Ollie, and this is episode something or another. This is definitely that episode. I think <laughs> for the for those of you who would like a more concrete way to refer to this episode, you could call it 152. Oh. So we are two away from ending our third season of Science in Between. Really? Yeah, which means we have, I believe, one more topic for next week, and then we've got to do all joy or... Oh, yeah, some year-ending thing. Wow. Yeah, season-ending. Yeah, look at us. Season ending. Yeah, there's yeah. that. That's cool. Look at Ooh. us. Mm. Look at us. We're fancy. They they said it would never last, and here we are. I don't know who they are. Or, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't think uh, anyone actually no, said that. But Probably not. Yeah. I mean, because nobody was actually listening, so who would have said anything <laughs> about it? <laughs> yeah, certainly not my my friends. I don't think my, I don't think my wife's listened to a single episode. Is your wife really? listening? Uh, I think she's listened to a couple here or there just to um, you know make me feel better. But I don't. I'm I don't. pretty reasonably certain no one in my family has listened to a single episode. I, like I do I, know that my parents listen to this occasionally. So Pat yeah. and Griff, if you're listening, a little shout out to you. But, yeah. um, Bravo! But, yeah, three claps but, for. Yeah, they, it's uh, because I never call them, and so this is the, the this, this is what my mom tells me. She's like, "Well, at least I get to hear your voice. <laughs> I get to like, find out like what's yeah. going on in your life." Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's a sad. Oh, statement. this is what he's reading. Oh, this yeah. is what he's. <laughs> yeah, that's sad great. statement on me as a son, but we're, that's we're, this is not <laughs> therapy. This is science in between. <laughs> So sometimes, well, sometimes it degenerates yeah. into therapy. Yeah, it does. I mean, they they get yeah. to find all the dark little corners of our lives. Mm, the skeler- mm. skeletons that are in our closets. <laughs> That's great. Which I maybe is why some people listen to it. It's like, oh, we could get some dirt yeah, on hope, Scott hope, and Ollie. Yeah, hoping to find some little nuggets. <laughs> yeah. Actually, this whole thing is a, a giant um, puzzle that we give clues every week. Right. And if you just figure out all the... <laughs> All the clues over the 152 episodes, you could uh, find the gold bullion that we've buried somewhere in the United wow. States. Yeah, Do you remember think... that book? There was a book that a children's book that some guy wrote. It was, I think, in the 80s, at may, or maybe a little. I after have that. no idea what you're talking about. I'll see if I can find it. But it, but All it right. was like a book that had a. It wasn't like real treasure, but it was some. Like it was a book about a bunny. Uh, see, my mother's my mother was a librarian, and, <laughs> and she's she shouting here, right now. She's like she's, shouting. She's yes. like, "It is this book." Um, but anyway, it had all these clues in it, and then you could, if you could figure it out, you could go and find this thing, and somebody eventually found it, and it was big news. Anyway, wow. that was a boring story, and we're not going to carry on <laughs> right into the main part. We're deleting show. this episode. Delete, delete. <laughs> the show will never air. Um, Okay, so what we are actually going to talk about is not bunnies and treasure hunts, but we are going to talk about professional vision. Um, and okay, before you just hit stop, it's like oh, I, gosh. I know that's your your immediate response. It's not my response. No, but it's the listener, the the hypothetical listener. Um, so professional vision is a concept from Chuck Goodwin, who's a linguistic anthropologist at um, UCLA. And- wow, you're really selling it. Yeah, I know, but give me a second, dude. It's got to go to space. Oh, a linguistic uh, anthropologist. Tell us more, Scott. <laughs> oh, this sounds so exciting. Yes. Maybe, maybe later we can watch paint dry together. Can we awesome. talk about epistemology, too? <laughs> oh, that would be great. Um, so 
So as as people who study learning, one of the things that we're always thinking about is what is what what is learning? What does it really mean? And especially for um you know for for me and for Ollie, we're interested in teachers learning and so we're interested in in that, right? So so that's sort of adult learning and some people think about it that way, but but we were really thinking about professional learning, like how do professionals learn to do their job? And then how do you conceptualize that in a way that's productive and helps you understand the, the ideas and, and helps you understand the actual practices of learning, of, of teachers learning? So, um, so Charles Goodwin characterized this idea of professional vision. It's been around um, a long time. The original paper was 1994 in, in uh, The American Anthropologist, but it's been used quite a bit and, and used and altered and, and as these things do get sort of passed through the sausage maker that is academia. Um, but it's, it, it really is just fundamentally about what does it mean for someone to learn a profession and how does that happen as a process? So we're just going to talk about it a little bit today because I think it helps. It's a concrete example. We're always talking about sociocultural perspectives and how it's different than a cognitive perspective, for example. Um, and that's very highfalutin and sounds like epistemology talk. So we're going to try and ground this in a specific example so we can talk a little bit about what it really means to think about learning in a different way and use this as a specific example. So well, uh, go I ahead. Think what, yeah. I think a good place would be to start. If you haven't read this article, this is one of those ones that people should read because I, I will say that like it reading it, it's like completely accessible. Yeah, like it is not something well that's like, and, yeah, it easy. sounds like it's like really out there. But one of the things that blew me away, cause I've read it like a bunch of times. And I remember the first time I read it just being mm. like, like my, my brain hurting because of, like how I got to see things differently was, you know, um, the it, it talks about like the Rodney King trial. Yeah. Like a lot of it is around the Rodney King trial. And it's one of the examples, he one chooses. of the examples he uses and one of the probably more powerful examples that he mm-hmm. uses um, where he talks about how the the police who were viewing the tape saw it completely different than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Like anybody else who were watching the Rodney, like the Rodney King uh, incident saw that and said, okay, this is an injustice happening. Mm-hmm. And the police officers who were watching the video are saying, hold on, this happened and then this happened. And then that's why this happened. And it's like, looks completely different because yep. they're trained as police officers and they're trained as police officers to to recognize certain things and to act in certain ways based on those things. Mm-hmm. And that is so eye-opening, but I think it's a really critical way of framing this. And I think it's a powerful way of framing it because it, it's something we all, like, I can't imagine anybody who's like, you know, anybody over 15 has seen the Rodney King, you know? Yeah, probably video, not. Right. You know, I would think it's probably that pervasive. And when we, I remember watching that and just being blown away by, you know, the, all of the injustice that was happening in that. Yeah, the brutality of it. The brutality and the injustice. But we're looking at it as novices, as, you know, as, you know, people who are not in, you know, police force, a police force, right? So we have no training or background in that. And so we're looking at it as just like with regular regular eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody who is trained in that is going to see something different. And I think that's the part to me, that's the most 
you know, um, in, instructive about this is that yeah. people who are trained or people who have experience in, in something see the world differently than the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I'm going to start poking a little bit because sure. I don't like the word trained. Um, and I know you don't either. You're but, right. But I, I think one of the things about this is, is um, so the part of the reason he uses the, the Rodney King um, video is not just because there are different interpretations, but his argument is essentially the defense was able to show the jury and, and enculturate the jury jury into viewing this tape the way a police officer would view this tape. And right. that fundamentally is how they were able to get the police officers uh, exonerated for this for this attack. Right. Um, and so I, I think the thing that's interesting is it is um, and this goes to lots of things, but fundamentally, the idea of professional vision is. These are cultures. These are cultural practices that people have to be enculturated into. You have to learn how to do them. Um, And that, but once you do do them, and this is another complicated thing about learning theory when we talk about sociocultural, um, is that when you change your culture, right, you're enculturated into a new thing, you change your identity, you become a new kind of person. And so I think that that really is powerful to think about that these, you know, police officers, as they're going through uh, their whole, you know, careers and all their professional development and all the experiences that they have, and then all the training that they get, sure. right, <clears throat> is about um, helping them reinterpret the world in the way that other police officers do, right? So it really is about, okay, if if somebody's on the ground and you're telling them to stay on the ground and they start to get up, that is an act of aggression and you have to treat it that way. And here are the responses. Right. So, um, so it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's seeing it's, it's that, it, that vision, it's seeing things from a different perspective that you're the culture you're being enculturated into a, a community of practice that is going to see things differently. Right. And, and describe I, and them I, differently. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things I want to, I want to try to, unpack a little is just this idea of seeing because one of the things that has happened with professional vision is it got turned into noticing so there were there was sort of a change in the way that people especially in mathematics education thought about this by changing professional vision into this idea of noticing and so it was sort of like professional vision is a lens that you look through and i think um i want to get away from that because um a that's very individualistic like i have a lens i have a way of interpreting this and um, B, it it doesn't comport with the way that Goodwin talked about professional vision as a as a socially constructed, but also dynamic, right? So it's happening in the moment. You, these police officers are making those interpretations in the moment with each other about what constitutes behavior and what is aggression or not aggression. Um, and it's it's constantly fluid, right? Like we talk about talk moves in AST, for example, like pressing right. and probing. Well, I can give you a definition of pressing, but until we're in a classroom together and we hear an actual child's statement and then respond to it, like pressing and probing, those definitions don't have meaning. They're, they have meaning in context, in the context of a professional context where you're doing that interpretation. Yeah. it's. I think one of the things for me when 
when I think about this, like, I, and I, I think I've told this story before. It's like, I had a principal who was going to come into an observation and mm. he came in and he's like, Oh, I'll come back when you're teaching. Yeah. And I'm like, cause his perspective of what teaching was going to look like was not what he was seeing that day. Right. right? And I was yeah. like, this guy is never going to be able to like observe my classroom because like teaching quote unquote because his perspective of that is so completely from a different you know community practice different you know culture different everything that he's going to come in and it's that's what's really hard about about this right Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's really hard about uh having it as a you know as a framework to for teacher education it's like how do you help people learn to see yeah. And act. And yeah. Well, and it, it also expresses the complexity of what it is to learn. Like it isn't just you need to know stuff differently. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, that, that administrator who came in your classroom, you can't just say, oh, let me just explain to you about science practices. And this is what science teaching should look like. And he could nod along and he could understand your mouth words and say, <laughs> oh, I understand what Ali is saying about this. But that doesn't mean that he actually is enculturated into these practices in a way that will help him reinterpret that activity in the way that you are. Right. Right. So, or, or like in giving them a checklist of look for's, right. Oh, you know, which is kind of like a scaffold or a bridge to help someone who's like, okay, you know, an administrator is not trained in science education. They're going to come in and watch a science teacher. Here are the look, the quote unquote look for's that you should have. Um, but it's like asks questions, check, you know, right. hold on. That is not, you know, you and I would look at asking questions very, very differently. Right. Right. Cause it, yeah. cause it's like, what kind of questions is it a probing question? Is it a pressing question? You know, right. are like, what's the context and what those questions and that yeah. is what makes it really, really challenging. Yeah. And we've had, we've, we've had our conversation about checklists and lists yeah. of things. Lists. Um, and I agree you completely. Love you love the I, lists. I love lists. Lists are my favorite thing. Um, so yeah, but that's a perfect example. Like if you just say, well, look for this and you have a list of these things, well, all of those things on that list are culturally and contextually bound. They're not free of context. So when it says asking questions, you're, you're exactly right. You know, what is a question is easy. What is a meaningful question in a science classroom in the context of teaching particular subject? That's a totally different thing. And, um, so, well, it might be useful just quickly to talk about the three key practices that Goodwin defines, sure. because I think those help give a sense of how this gets done, right? So how it isn't professional vision in, in total. Professional vision is really the result of these three key practices, but there are practices that produce professional vision. So he basically practice. says, practice, <clears throat> he says, there's three things. First one is highlighting. So this is you, Ali and I, well, not Ali and I, me and, and, and some new teacher who's never is, is learning how to teach, who's never taught before that we're sitting in a classroom together, watching what's happening in class. Well, the first thing that that person and I do differently is what we attend to, right? So I highlight, which is what attending to means. You highlight something in the classroom. You say, Oh, did you hear what that kid said? Or, Oh, did you see what the teacher did there? Right. Um, and the, that highlighting is the first step in, in enculturation. So we, I'm, I'm helping this person in, in this instance, if they're learning from me, I'm helping them to understand what's salient, what's important in the classroom. What should you be attending to? Because they're probably not attending to the things that I'm attending to. 
So maybe we'll start there and then we'll go through them one at a time. So to see what you have to say about like highlighting, because I think that's the one that's the most obvious. That's like, oh, we just like that's observation. Right. And I think what what's what's great about the the article, the Goodwin article, is that uh, situates it in anthropology. Right. They go out into the field and they're digging in the dirt. And, you know, an anthropologist points to this and says, look, you see this? You see this? uh, This discoloration right here. This discoloration is a fence post. Yeah, it's a post hole. It's a post hole. And like circles it and like really points it out to like the students that are assembled there and then talks about like how they're able to notice that, how they're able to, I know I'm trying, I'm trying to avoid that term because it, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but highlights it for the, the, yeah. the, the, the people so that they can see what he sees. Right. And the know? cool thing in that story is the, the, the anthropologist who's describing this postal is saying, do you see that discoloration? And people are like, well, I'm not sure exactly. And then he takes his trowel and he outlines it. And, and like all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh yeah. You know? So this idea of like highlighting is not just noticing that thing, but also making it available for everyone. Right. Which is what he does when he does that little circle. He's like, here's the thing that we're going to talk about is this thing right here. And um, so I think that's it's a really cool story. Um, and it's one of the other examples this is very interesting contrast. You got Rodney King and you got anthropologists in the field looking at postals. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I think doing this with like beginning teachers is challenging because it's usually not in the moment. Right. You want them to like. You know, you want to highlight something like say you do an observation with, the, you know, uh, a new teacher. Um, I always go, OK, do you remember when they did this? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about it in a post observation conference yep. and it's hard to highlight in that yep. moment. And yep. I think that's where you your work with like video analysis was really helpful is that they can watch the video. They can then, you know, look and you could show them you can yep. highlight the, the, the moment now that, you know. The problem with video is that, you know, it is a representation of yeah. the classroom, but it's not the representation right. of a and classroom. And it's got a point of view and it's already right. interpreted in some way the the classroom because it's positioned and all right. that. But yeah, yeah. I think right. So video is um is a good approximation. Um and then the other thing hopefully that you can do, and you you probably do to some degree, um, but I have the advantage in my case of being in classrooms with my students when neither of us is teaching and we're there together watching classrooms in real time. And right. in those contexts, I can also work with, I, I've been working with these mentor teachers long enough that I can interrupt and say, Hey, can we take a second and stop and talk yeah. about what just happened there? But, but yeah, I think you're right that that's so important is, is that, being able to do it like you can't just tell people in a classroom, oh, here's what you want to look for in a classroom. It doesn't work that way. Again, it's all contextual and cultural. You can't say you want to look for when kids like express a, a hybrid notion that is partially correct and partially uh, non-normative. And it's like, OK, wow, that's yeah, a lot of mouth that, words. Right? And I don't know yeah. what that means. Well, that, one of the things I went to uh, a conference a few years ago, this is before the pandemic, I think right before the pandemic, actually, it was like mm-hmm. the February before it all hit the fan. And I was attending a, a session in which they were doing um, observations or like, what did they call it? It was they had you the know, in-ear. in-ear, you know, yeah. coaching, right? Yeah. So somebody was coaching 
almost like while somebody was real teaching, time. Yeah. real time and saying, do you see Mary? Mary yeah. ha- right now is doing this. What do you, you know, they've asked this question. So go like, over there and yeah. And it's like, I, I was just like blown away by that. And I was, but I think that's, can get at some of this because it's actually in it's highlighting in the process, in the moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think this has been the challenge for teacher education and probably lots of practices like this um, that are, that really you need to learn by doing them um, is how do you provide supportive context for people to learn while doing, but also, um, you know, helping them learn while they're doing it. Because the, as you said, the post hoc analysis where you sit right. down with them afterwards and you're like, Oh, you remember in the first five minutes when you said this thing and they're like, well, sort of. And what, and do you remember what the kid said? No. Um, so I think it is, it is a challenge of this field um, that we have to figure out ways to engage in the practice as much with with the people that are trying to learn as we can so that we're with them while they're doing it and helping them understand it in the moment and in the practice so we've got Um, highlighting is one right yeah so so the next one is coding so coding is once you've identified something some salient thing in the environment then you have to decide what it means right and that's what coding is coding is determining a meaning for this thing so that is also socially negotiated because people are not necessarily going to agree on what that thing means in a particular context. So you hear a kid's question and, or a kid's statement and now, okay, so we've identified that as something that we want to talk about. It's salient. It's important. What does it mean? What do you think it means? And and how do we interpret that in a way that then ultimately allows us to make some sort of decision about practice, right? Because once you understand what it means or decide what it means, because you don't, you there's no right answers, once you decide what it means, then you have based on that a response that you're going to try. So this kid, I think, isn't understanding something about force. So I'm going to see if I can think of a question that'll probe that a little, that'll get them to think about this other thing, or maybe something that they've had experience with that they could bring to bear here to help them better understand force in this context. Yeah. So one of one of the things in that I did this summer was uh, I I've, I created a whole reading list of things I wanted to read and mm-hmm. and one of the books that I read was On Looking mm, yeah. um, by I think it's uh, Horowitz I'm forgetting blanking on her first name um, maybe I'll Amy. find you talk yeah yeah so what what this the premise of this book is she is somebody who walks a lot. Um, and walks with her dog and her, her child and walks around the same New York neighborhood over and over again. She decides that she, what she w- wants to do is to start walking with people who have expertise in different areas, mm-hmm. right? So she walks with, uh, you know, a, a biologist and walks with a typographer and walks with a doctor and walks with um, somebody who's an audio engineer and somebody who's blind. And so people who are like really experiencing that a walk differently right Mm -hmm. and so um i think that with i think these practices you're talking about are are represented in this book right Mm -hmm. because one of the things that she walks with the typographer is like walking around and showing the typeface you know and saying oh do you see that that typeface but then when they it doesn't just like say hey look at that typeface. that's a different typeface than that one yeah right it's saying okay the historical background right. and everything that they see 
about that. And right. I think the the doctor one is really fascinating because they were um, almost like uh, walking by people diagnosing and like people. diagnosing people <laughs> based on their gait or yeah. by their posture or, and it was just fascinating because he's, he's like, well, do you see this person is like kind of walking like, and he slumped a little bit to his left. I'm really concerned that that person may have this because of, and it was just, so it was the highlighting and then also the interpreting and coding that yeah. I think is, was just fascinating. And I think that if you haven't used you know, a book like that as a way of teaching this, mm-hmm. I think it would be a really cool way of looking at it. And also like, you know, especially if you did it like as like a jigsaw, Hey, you get this chapter, you get this chapter, you get this chapter, use these practices and say that would be really cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I think it's a, yeah. So it's called on looking 11 walks with expert eyes by Alexandra Horowitz. So you were Close. Right I, I said Close Amy. Yeah, I said yeah. Alexandra. Yeah, it's a great read. I, it's recommended it, it, by a guest on the show, Brett Criswell. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I kind of came at it. I was like, yeah. And I think he wanted to read it from the perspective of professional vision. I yeah, think that's what, sure how he, yeah. and then uh, it sounded fascinating. It's, she's a great writer. And yeah. so um, there are times where I think she could be a, probably a little bit more efficient in her writing, but it's mm. really beautiful writing. Like she's yeah. really poetic in how she writes. Um, and how she describes these, these walks. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it is something that is, uh, I think highlights. Uh, highlight. okay. uh, I saw what really you did there. Yeah. I saw what you did there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the coding is a big thing, this interpretation, and that's where a lot of the negotiation happens, right? That's the negotiation of meaning. Well, I think this means this, I think it means that. And then, we come to agreement or not. Sometimes we we agree to disagree. Well, you think it's this, I think it's that, but we're going to make our own choices based on that. Um, and then, but then the last practice that he has um, is the creation of material representations of practice. So this this sounds like a fancy thing, but really it's just like you write stuff down. So after we agree on things, um, we start writing things down to remember them. And this goes to that checklist idea. That checklist is is a material representation of practice, but it always has to be reinterpreted in new practices, you know, and, and the example, one of the examples they use in the, in Goodwin's chapter is the Munsell chart, which is a color chart that, um, that anthropologists use to identify the color of soil. Cause they spend a lot of time looking at soil cause they're trying to figure out, um, hi- the history by looking at the soil and the differences in the soil colors and, I don't know what else, probably lots of other things that I don't understand. So, um, but this idea, and it hasn't been explored very much in the educational literature, but of material representations of practice is really important. And I think we tend to think of it as, because he uses the Munsell chart as a, an example, as having to be something like that, some some chart that's super representative of lots of things. But really, it's just this is a capturing of something that we have agreed on as part of our practice. The obvious one would be lesson plans and teaching, but, um, but we've agreed on this. We want to write it down so that we can, we can remember it and use it as a scaffold to help us as we highlight and code and interpret the world. Yeah. And I think that's what I talked about the Goodwin article being really accessible besides like the, the, the Munsell chart. They also uh, have, transcripts right transcripts yeah. of the, the dialogue but then they also have like drawings right yep. to show this like hey and they have pictures showing mm-hmm. the person drawing in the you know yep. like uh, uh, sketching out the yep. so 
it it like it practices what it preaches, right? It's saying, look, hey, for you to understand this, I need to show you what this looks like, right? right? And right. then showing what it looks like in practice through, you know, the the transcripts, through the pictures, through the pictures of the people standing in front of the video of the Rodney King showing things, and like the, and I think that all of it is it makes it even more accessible for for me as a reader because I'm looking at this and and. He's going through all of that. Hey, let me highlight this for you. Let let me like, you know, really, you know, stick the landing with it. You know, that's great. Yeah. And I think that's coming back to the on looking book. That's the other thing that she does in the book is that she inter intermixes like drawings, like her own drawings of like, of like, oh, this is what, you know, the typeface looked like. Oh, this is what the, you know, the tracks of like an animal were doing or a bird or whatever that, I mean, it may not rise to that representation, but it, it does, it does help it like help you understand. No, I think it does rise to that level of interpretation. But I think that the challenging thing is, and I think we can, you know, like you said, go back to the Goodwin article. Goodwin, I mean, all of that is his attempt to represent, to create a material representation of the practice that he's trying to communicate, which is professional vision. But I think the interesting thing, again, using that article as an example, is people reinterpret that, which is where noticing came from. Noticing came from, we're going to take this material representation of practice, which is Charles Goodwin's article about professional vision, and we're going to reinterpret it. And we're going to reinterpret it as this is an individual thing that people have as a lens for viewing the world. Um, And what we're trying to do is replace their lens with our lens, because our lens is the right way to view things in the case of say teaching and their lens is the wrong way. And we need to, we need to exchange those lenses um, so that they will see correctly. Um, And that's, that's not at least in my, from my point of view, the way that Charles Goodwin talked about it. And it's not the interpretation that I give that same material representation of practice, which is his article. So I think, you know, it's turtles all the way down, all of it. Every time you externalize something, whether that's a kid externalizing a model in class or whether it's us writing an article for a professional community, that's a material representation of practice and it gets reinterpreted by other people. So other people are going to read it and they're going to make their own sense of it and they're going to decide what it means. And some of those people are in my community. um, If I'm writing an article and they, I'm going to write words on a paper and they're going to take them in a way that I did not intend. And that's just the way the world works. That's that's how professional vision works. Yeah, and that, I think that's where it kind of gets sticky, right? Is that because people exist in these different communities, just like you know my principal and just me, and you know, sure. And from his perspective, I may be a bad teacher, right? right. I mean, I, I, 100%. I, you know, he docked me because I let a student get up and get a Kleenex, right? right? Well, I and mean, that's chaos. Uh, right. I have that it was kind of chaos like in classrooms. That your student, the student got up to sharpen their pencil without asking. I'm like, they're 11th graders. Yeah. They're like 16 and 17 year old. This is what old. a community of trust looks like, dude. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> I but trust the, them to get Kleenex right. when they need it. But viewed in from our perspective, that's an okay, you know, that's an okay practice. Like you said, it's a community right. of trust. It's like I've established an environment in which that kind of like control is unnecessary. Students have that basic level of agency, right? Yeah, right. It's a pretty low level of agency to be I able know, to get Kleenex right? when you want it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or to sharpen your pencil, right? right? Yeah. If you want it's to sharpen your crazy. pencil, like, yeah, I know. Yeah. But like from a different 
community, a different, that action is viewed very differently, you know, same action, same words, right? Like uh, the words on a piece of paper, same words, but interpreted differently. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this, there's so many challenges that this, this puts in context, right? So you think about the classic one, which is the, the research practice divide, right? So teachers view teaching differently than researchers on teachers, uh, teaching, view teaching like so so they they have to have that conversation across i mean another classic one that we have all the time i think in teacher education is um the mentor teachers often and sometimes the supervisors the people who are doing the supervision of those student teachers have a different notion of what good teaching is than i do and so when we're the supervisor and i are sitting in a classroom we may highlight the same thing but we code it completely differently and so if we don't have a conversation, then the the student is caught. The student is trapped because they don't know like, well, which, which of these am I supposed to see as the interpretation that is the one that I'm learning, right? Am I learning Scott's interpretation or the supervisor's interpretation? Um, but all of that is happening constantly, right? That there are different communities intersecting with each other that are interpreting and reinterpreting the same actions that are happening. And all that's happening dynamically. And you know, supervisors 20 years ago interpreted it differently than they do now in the same way that I, you know, we talked about this last time, like me looking clear eyed back on my own teaching yeah. uh, 20 years ago. I have a very different interpretation of what my teaching was. Um, and that that's because I've been enculturated into new kinds of practices that I didn't have access to when I was a teacher. Yeah. Well, so like. I think that are you still doing the video analysis stuff that you were doing? Um, a lot less because we have access to real classrooms, so right. um, so there's less of a need for it. So yeah, yeah, because I thought yeah. that that was always something when when I was taking classes with you, and then you know after when we were doing all that work, um, yeah. with our 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 group, our research group, that was always something really beneficial because again, it's it's a representation. I've I've yeah. some colleagues at and Millersville who are doing a, a bit of it with uh. A video coding software where they're looking at having students collect it and then helping them notice. And I think that's a way yeah. of, you know, doing it. Um, I, I find that, you know, in their coaching thing really interesting. I don't know if I could pull it off. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like we could put a pin in that and come back to it. I have, I have, I have certain issues with that too, but, but I, I do think it's an interesting tool. Um, yeah. I mean, I think video analysis is a powerful tool. All these tools have, you know, as we say about everything, affordances and constraints, there are right. strengths of those tools and there are weaknesses of those tools. I mean, the video analysis was, was cool. One of the things I was able to do um, because of some of the software tools that were available at the time and obviously still are is, you know, you could have people individually look at classroom video and then you could lay that analysis all together. So you could see where are people seeing yeah. overlapping things that they found interesting. And then you can go and look at those examples and say, well, what's happening here that everybody thought something interesting was going on right here? Um, that's a that's a cool experience for people to realize like, oh, we already have a notion of what's important in classrooms, right? Because if we show everybody, 25 people in the classroom, the same video, it, like 22 of the people mark the same spot in the video is something that we need to attend to. So, so that idea of highlighting and approximations of practice and, and, um, and the apprenticeship of observation, which we've talked about, right? So you learn what good teaching is by watching lots of teachers as a student. Um, all of that is enculturation into a professional vision for teaching. So yeah, I think stuff. For, for me, like what it helped me with when, when I was doing it with my, uh, beginning teachers was 
like they tended to just focus on themselves. Yeah. Right. They yeah, were especially like, if they're watch, watching video of themselves. Yeah. What, when they're watching the videos of themselves, they're they're hearing the ums and ahs and stutters and all that. And mm-hmm. and anyone who's listened to more than one episode of this podcast recognize that at least one of us stutters <laughs> a good bit and ums and ahs a good bit. And and you know what? We we don't care at all. Right. right? And it's irrelevant. Go, it, it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the 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 quality of teaching. It's uh, maybe it's relevant to the quality of this podcast but it is irrelevant to the quality i mean now if it was like pervasive so much that it it, like but that's you know that is really the you know extreme example and that's not what we're talking about with most of the people we work with most of the people we work with are really need to be focusing on other things yeah right for sure and and shifting that focus away from themselves and their speech patterns and you know to highlighting other aspects of the practice and other aspects of the classroom environment, I think is, is the critical shift that needs to happen for them. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. All right. We're going to move, switch to joys. You think we, yeah, I think we can switch to joys. All right. I think you should go. All right. Well, in my, uh, my read summer of reading, I'm uh I shifted a, a little bit to um reading some more you call it speculative fiction right you, that's how it, I, I, I have called yeah yeah I think well I think some folks who write that kind of stuff are trying to get away from the notion of science fiction as a as a terminology so what what was my what was my joy last week I, I want to make sure that I... um well it might have been this did you do the three body problem because that's no oh no 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 so um i'm i sh- i i've read I the look. city the city we became uh, the... uh no you have not talked about okay. that so there you go you can choose yeah. it as a joy yeah so i just want to make sure because i'm like i i started this book i thought within like the last couple of days um so if you remember, we I I read based on your recommendation, um, uh, N.K. Jemison's books on the obelisk gates, you know, and um, what's that? Yeah, which are great, which yeah, are yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, and this is another series that she has, and I'm really trying to diversify the the authors that I read, and N.K. Jemison is uh she's an African American writer who is she's out of New York City, and this book is about new york city it's about um it's a little body snatching it's a little bit you know um aliens and you know mm-hmm. it, body snatching aliens mm. yes and there's also a piece about like multiverse that's in there that's kind of interesting which are all things that i'm cool with you know um it's not for everybody um you're, but it, you're cool with it i'm cool with I'm cool body with snatching, yeah, body snatching aliens yeah i don't mind, <laughs> I don't mind that yeah. come snatch my body alien i don't care <laughs> <laughs> make things easier for me you know <laughs> simplify but my that, life a little bit yeah so i'm i'm really enjoying it it is um i i will read more of her her writing because i really enjoy the way she tells a story the way she crafts uh characters and and also i mean it's clear she is uh she has a perspective of of the world and she's willing to use her position as an author to help that you know and to communicate that and i love it i really enjoy that and yeah. you know no i've i've read a lot of her books and yeah they're they're fabulous she's a really incredible writer um, she, i think she was the first one to ever win back to back to back 
Hugo Awards, which is a self like was it Hugo like, or like, Nebula, one or the other, or maybe both. I don't know. Right. Well, it's like yeah. winning the Oscars three years yeah. in a row. You yeah. know, it's like, come on. Yeah, you know? it's pr- pretty solid work there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so nice. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend uh, something that is is not uh, erudite and uh, and well written or <laughs> any of that stuff. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the thing that brought me joy recently was John Wick four. So oh, nice. um, I'm a, I'm a John Wick person. I admit I'm it. too. And uh, but yeah, John Wick four two thumbs up. Just you know, solid. Uh, Keanu Reeves is is just phenomenal, and the fact that he does all the his own stuff in this is is all really right. makes it even more impressive. But yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen John Wick, um, go back and see the first one. But um, but it, you know, the basic it's basically just a giant revenge fight. Um, yeah. that happens for in this case almost three hours. Uh, but it is a long movie. It's, it's a long it, film. But yeah, uh, you didn't see it in the theaters, did you? Yeah. No, you saw I didn't. I missed it. Um, yeah. It is one that you should should experience in the theaters. And so when John Wick 5 comes out, which inevitably it will. Uh, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. And uh, I'm just real. Well, I, I've got I've got my one for next time, too. But but uh, yeah. So John Wick 4, if you haven't seen it, do do see it. You don't, I don't think anybody can see it in the theaters anymore because it's out of the theaters. But um and it would it would be improved, I imagine, by seeing it in the theaters. But it's uh, but it's a good film. Yeah, you got I mean, you got to some... you got to be okay with violence. There's there's a little <laughs> bit of violence in it, ninety nine percent of it. <laughs> well, it's not just it's not just violence. It is like like graphic. Well, I it, yeah. it's not like I would say it's not horror, right? It's not a horror no. movie. It is like an an action movie where like he just uses any form of weapon to hurt people. <laughs> yeah. And kill kill most of them. Yes. If we're being honest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. not um yeah. It's it's not a uh a relax, have deep thoughts sort of movie. It's a um it's a yeah, it's it's high high octane. But have you um, have you seen have you seen Barbie? see you're we're not doing this okay that's, all right. that's a different thing we don't uh, do, we don't say we don't I go know. into additional joys right. we're not gonna talk, if you want to talk about that next no. week you can I mean, I'll, put a, I'll put a pin in that yeah, put a pin in and it but, it is but a, you don't I, get it you don't I, get a twofer I, just because you're like I, oh by the way have you seen this no and no. it's on our list to see oppenheimer coming up so, what are you doing here i'm dude? just saying what, what just are saying. you doing here i'm just you know? No, you. This is breaking the convention. You are just yeah. like. Well, sometimes you have to change. Your you're practice. doing like a Brett Criswell here, where he just starts <laughs> listing all the things that things. bring him joy. It's like, dude, this, you're supposed to pick the one thing. One you're, thing, right? You're going to confuse the. I didn't. I, didn't, I, didn't I haven't seen Oppenheimer. I know, so but I don't you know shouldn't even be joy. in the com- this section of the show. You mentioned one thing. That's it. You don't mention <laughs> three, four things. That's yeah. no, you're. It's not like this is the bit. The bit is well, you do just a joy, and you don't. This bit right here is bringing me joy. <laughs> Well, I think we need to effort an ending to this show. Yes, yes, that is I the, love it. That's the only time I will ever use that word. I'm gonna, life. I'm gonna cut that out. And yeah, put that in make, every episode. Make it, make it your ringtone. <laughs> yes, that is fantastic. All right. In that note, let's let's wrap up here. We'll yeah. catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. 